welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people. From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner? Yes, and that's what this podcast is for. And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in. A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides. Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money. So you were trading three times the leverage ETFs for the love of the game. Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson. This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football. Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. On today's show, we're going to lead it off talking about the greatest closet indexer of all time came out with his annual letter over the weekend. Ben, what were your thoughts on the Buffett letter? I was like taking a step back from, I mean, the letter was okay, but like the numbers are sort of mind boggling after a certain time. Look, since 1965, he's grown the book value of Berkshire Hathaway by 2.4 million percent. And so, so my theory about the internet is that nothing is properly rated anymore because everything is over or underrated because it's all just talked about too much like is it possible that buffett is is now gone from being extremely like (laughs) properly rated in the past to underrated again now because like the last five or ten years he hasn't really done that well is he underrated because he's so overrated (laughs) yeah Uh, no just because he i I feel like people have kind of forgotten because he hasn't done as well in like recent years like the last decade his his return numbers aren't so swell and people are People think it's cool to be a contrarian and pick apart Buffett now, and I feel like yeah. he's he's almost gotten to the point where he's almost underrated again because the, the numbers are so staggering. So it, it is just, I think, kind of mind-boggling to me. Yeah, it's hard to say whether or not Buffett is the best stock picker of all time, but without a doubt, he is the greatest wealth creator of all time. And he's also the greatest folksy quote machine of all time. Yeah, so in the last five years or so, he's done... When I say he, Berkshire Hathaway has has basically matched the returns of the S and P five hundred, but I think to say that he has become a closet indexer is the height of stupidity, because he's not managing a mutual fund. Right, right. It's a diversified set of businesses. Some of them public in his stock portfolio, but a lot of the businesses they now own are private, and so yeah, it's not the same thing. So yeah, the letter to me was just was just so so. Uh, it was much shorter than his other ones were, but for goodness sakes, give the guy a break. He's ninety years old. He's been doing this for fifty years. Um, I don't think that anything that he could have done would have been good enough for the people that like to be the knee jerk Buffett contrarians. No, but so the biggest thing that he really touched on the 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 bulk of the the letter was talking about his bet with Protege Partners, which is the hedge fund. They did a ten year bet in two thousand seven. And Buffett took the S and P 500, and then Protege Partners picked five fund of funds, fund of hedge funds, and then the winner got to donate the money to the charity that they invested. And Buffett kind of took a victory lap and showed how he basically crushed the fund of funds. You know, they did five of them, and he they actually showed the performance of each each fund of fund in the letter. And my takeaway from this was, you know, obviously hedge funds have had a difficult time in recent years, but I think. 
for all of the institutions that are invested in hedge funds, when you look at these these return numbers and how much the S&P 500 has crushed them, and we've talked about this in the past, it's maybe not an apples to apples comparison, but but anyways, these things are going to be a huge sore thumb sticking out on the returns of these institutions for a long time, since the returns have been bad for so long now. And we said that maybe hedge funds aren't dying the slow death like people thought they are, but it's going to be tough for, for these funds to hold on to these hedge funds when they see these return numbers and they look at their returns on a quarterly basis. What do you mean exactly? These institutions that hold hedge funds check their performance all the time. And so they're, if they're looking at the longer-term numbers, they're not going to just get better overnight. These long-term numbers are going to be there for a while, looking terrible. Oh, got it. So, it's gonna, it's, so even if they have a really good run, it's going to take a while for the ship to turn around. Yeah, which people judge on past performance, which doesn't make any sense, but that's the way it happens. So it's just going to be a huge you know, sore spot on the on the books for a lot of these, these funds when they look at the performance. Yeah, so there was five in here, and the average annual gain over the 10-year period was 2%, 3.6%, 6.5%, 0.3%, and 2.4%, compared to the S&P 500, which did 8.5%, which is around equal to its long-term average return. But what was really interesting to me was that the bet started in 2008, when the S&P 500 lost 37%, and all of these funds came out ahead. Like all, Every one of these five funds beat the S&P pretty handily in 2008, and then for the remaining nine years, just couldn't catch up. And one of the funds, actually, Fund D, shut down. A few things that stood out to me on this letter was when you look at the interest that he has in these public companies, it's just sort of crazy. Like he owns 17% of American Express. When I say he, Berkshire Hathaway, 3% of Apple, 7% of Bank of America, 9.4% of Coca-Cola, 9.9% of Wells Fargo, 100% of Geico. And when you look at this, he has about $100 billion in unrealized gains. Not bad. Yeah, it's real money, I think, right? Yeah, it, it is kind of crazy to look at this list. And, and again, it's, it's so concentrated for such a large amount of money. And a lot of these have been held for so long because he shows the shares and when they bought them. And it, it is pretty crazy. So so the thing that I am I was thinking after reading this, and you talked about how Buffett kind of mailed it in, which which I guess makes sense, I suppose, after that long, you can do that. But like, what happens to Berkshire when he's gone? Either when he dies, uh, which is kind of a morbid thought, or when he just steps aside and lets someone else take the reins. Like, does the stock get crushed 10% or 15% on the, the day that happens? Or does this get baked into the price eventually? And maybe that's part of the reason Berkshire hasn't been performing as well lately. I think the stock opens down 8% and closes only down 3% on the day. The first move is a head fake? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. What do you, I don't think it's going to necessarily get crushed. It's not as if Berkshire is trading at a huge premium to its book value. I think it's like one six or one seven. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. And a lot of people think that there is sort of a Buffett premium baked in, but I guess the hope is that he's, he's set it up enough where it just runs on its own without him and it doesn't need him. But I still think people kind of panic in, in some ways. And I feel like even if you know this is coming, it's going to be hard for investors to, to sort of not just to ignore that. Similar to what we said about Bitcoin being the majority is held by so few people. I think the same case could be made for Berkshire Hathaway that there's so many people that will never, ever sell so yeah. that the, the day-to-day price action might be controlled at the margin by the marginal buyer and seller. So maybe maybe the people that are inclined to sell will do so on the first few days. I don't know. That's uh, true. But what strikes me as the most fascinating thing about Warren Buffett, like his real superpower, you know, whether or not he's the greatest stock picker of all time, I guess is, you know, is, is definitely very debatable. But his superpower is 
is being able to truly stomach stock market volatility, which he has proven to do time and time again. And I think that's probably the most important characteristic for any investor. And he included a table where he showed four times the value of Berkshire Hathaway got crushed. And not once did he sell his stock. I'm pretty sure Buffett copied me on this because I did a blog post about this a couple years ago where I showed the worst losses. So I'm pretty sure he just copied my data. But I think the craziest thing is that the worst loss Berkshire ever suffered was in the 70s, actually. It wasn't the dot-com bubble and it wasn't the great financial crisis. It lost almost 60% in the mid-70s, which is kind of crazy. But yeah, and guess what? <laughs> he just sat through them. And, and that's like the biggest thing that people don't realize is like just that having that patience and that mental fortitude to hold on to your stocks when they get crushed. like That's one of the biggest parts about being a stock investor. And how about this? So from, 90, from June 98 to March 2000, Berkshire lost 49%. And I'm pretty sure in March... Well, I'm positive. In March 2000, stocks peaked. Right. That was like the So peak. he got cut in half as stocks were absolutely ripping. And then from 2000, the bottom until 2003, he destroyed the, the market. But his... Mental fortitude is nothing short of extraordinary. I think that's probably his most admirable quality. And then we, I mean, we've spoken about this in the past how people praise Buffett and, and you know, just worship at his altar. And I think that he has done a, a lot of amazing things for investors and created thousands of millionaires, uh, obviously. And I think we, we have spoken about this previously. His personal life has left much to be desired. He was not a particularly good father and maybe not the easiest person to, to live with, to say the least. But he has been obviously a tremendous ambassador for investors over time. Yeah. I think in the, the book Snowball, his biography, he didn't really come out in the greatest light from a personal perspective, at least from, from my read of it. So yeah, so I think people that just worship him, you know, for for and think he's the greatest person in the world. There's always more to the story than that, but and certainly in terms of being an investor, it's it's hard to beat. Yep. So so moving on, Bloomberg wrote an article talking about what happens when stocks and bonds might fall. I forget the, the title, but anyway, they were they said, quote, the economy has changed and investors can no longer rely on a diversified stock bond portfolio to provide protection in times of market volatility, according to J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And I took a look at this because it does feel like on days that the market has fallen this year, bonds have not really cushioned the blow at all. And the major takeaway for me is that diversification does not always work over you know a three-month period, but they are right that bonds have not provided a cushion when stocks fell this year. Yeah. Uh, I, I, let's see. Well, yeah, the obvious thing here is that interest rates have been rising and as rates have been rising stocks have been falling so uh, bonds and interest rates you know are inverse, inversely correlated so as as rates rise bonds will fall and i think your point where you you showed in your graph which we'll include in the show notes that the percentage of days where stocks fall more than a half percent and bonds close negative is, is the highest it's been since the you know since you looked at the data going back to the 90s which is kind of interesting this goes back to 1989 and there have been Eight days that the S&P 500 fell at least half a percent this year, and on all but one of those days, so in seven of eight days, bonds also fell, which is unusual. Obviously, we're only you know two months through the year, but the next highest is like 60%. So in 99, in 1999, there was a lot of days where, where bonds didn't cushion the blow, but so, stocks and bonds So did, if you extend this year. a little bit, I'm actually, I just turned in a piece to Bloomberg today, so this is hot off the presses. I was trying to figure out, do stocks diversify bonds on a little bit of a longer time horizon? So bonds have fallen 16 times since 1928. This is using the 10-year treasury on a calendar year basis. 
and stocks were up 13 of those 16 years. So I, I think there is something to say for the fact that stocks, you know, it's kind of an asset allocation thing where money has to go somewhere. We've talked about this before. And, and I think that's over the longer term that that kind of helps cushion the blow. If one of these two does fall, that there is some some give and take between them where, where one will sort of help when the other falls. And, and even when they do fall, I think bonds aren't going to crush you when they when they fall. And so I think you're, you're looking at smaller losses than you'll see in stocks as well. So we're recording this on Tuesday morning. The S&P 500 is down 80 basis points and BND is down 33 basis points. So again, another day that you know the day is not over, but stocks are down almost 1% and bonds are down as well. Do you want to pause real, and, real quick to do some hedging trades? Oh, I did that yesterday. Okay. I'm always good. hedged. Good. So I wrote a piece this week about the huge conundrum we have when trying to save and invest for the future and enjoy ourselves right now and talked about how there's always extremes. And so you have these people who they save 80% of their income in retirement age 30, but then you also have these other people who never save anything and they get to their 50s or 60s and they're sort of out of luck. So the Atlantic actually had a piece about the older crowd in kind of what happens to you know older people who haven't saved any money. And they gave some stories and they talked about people who are living just off of Social Security. They're in their 50s and 60s and haven't saved anything yet. And I pulled a few stats from the article that I thought were interesting. So they said, two-thirds of Americans don't contribute any money to a 401k or other retirement account. That's based on the Census Bureau. Uh, one of the other ones, about 12.4% of the population age 65 or older is still in the workforce. That's up from 3% in 2000. And the other one was the median savings in a 401k plan for people between the ages of 55 and 64 is just $15,000, according to the National Institute on Retirement Security. So again, the, the stats are something like eight to 10,000 baby boomers are retiring a day for like the next 17 or 18 years. And obviously a lot of them are ill-prepared for retirement. And this, this, kind of, this article shed some light on what that looks like. And unfortunately, it's not very good where people are having to work into their 70s and 80s potentially and really cut back on their lifestyle. And healthcare costs are so ridiculous as you get older. Yeah. And so I, I looked at this like a lot. Long-term, long-term care insurance is like bankrupting a lot of insurance companies that didn't properly plan for this. Yeah. And so the way I look at it, I've said before, it's not really a retirement crisis. It's an expectations crisis. So a lot of people are just going to have to really understand that their retirement is not going to be what they thought it was if they haven't saved anything. But one thing I did look at a while ago was the fact that if you're it's really hard to become a saver if you've been just a spender all your life and you haven't put anything aside. But even if you're, say, you're 55 years old and you have 10 years to retire and you haven't saved a dime. So I looked at what happened, and a lot of people will take that to mean they need to shoot the moon and take a bunch of risk in their investments to make some money once they start saving. But I actually looked at the, the data and found that if you're saving for 10 years, doubling your savings rate is actually better for your bottom line than doubling your returns. So I looked at what happens if you save 10% of your salary and you get an 8% return. You get a much larger balance if you save 20% of your income but only get a 4% return. So for people later in life that have a smaller time horizon, the compounding effects aren't as great, so it's more how much you save. So hopefully once the kids are out of college and you've you've sort of gotten your, your home paid off, hopefully, or something like that, and you try to start saving at a later date, you actually have the means and a higher, higher salary, hopefully, um, not all is lost if you really sort of ramp it up later in life. Yeah, but the problem is the people that aren't saving, a lot of them just can't save because they don't make enough money. And this was floating around this week. I think the biggest, the best personal financial advice is to make more money, which is obviously sort of yeah. you know, arrogant and tug-in-cheek and whatever, but not everybody has that ability to do so. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's always going to be a segment of the population. And I think these days it's probably, I don't know, 30 or 40% that just 
can't or won't or don't have the ability to save, unfortunately. It's probably just never going to happen. So uh, is this going to like come to a head? Is there going to be a revolt? Is uh, or, or people just going to be moving in with their children? Like <laughs> We see all of these statistics, and I guess it's happening around us every day. Maybe you know we don't deal with it quite yet, but there's a lot of really scary shit going on out there. Well, it's funny. The millennials, they say, are living in their parents' basement too long, so maybe they'll all just... Then they'll turn around and the baby boomers will move in with them when they buy a house. But I think there is going to be sort of this class warfare between generations where the older generations are going to have it put a huge burden on the younger generations and taxpayers in terms of uh, you know help from the government, and the younger people aren't going to want to fit that foot that bill in a lot of ways. So I think there is going to be... And we've talked about this with a pension crisis where... Governments are going to have some tough choices to make in terms of, you know, a lot of their money is going to be going to these things, and it's it's going to be hard to justify that in a lot of ways if, if they're cutting back in other areas. I, I don't know what the answer is. Everybody wants to be fiscally conservative until, it's, until it affects you. So moving from boomers in retirement to millennials, there was an article in the New York Times, millennials are saving for the future if they can afford to. And there was six or seven people on this panel, and I thought that a lot of them gave really good answers to one of the questions, what does retiring mean to you? So I thought that we could just talk about this for a little bit. Morgan said, retirement for me is saving up as much as I can so that by hopefully 60 at the latest, I have enough money to live off for a good 20 years, maybe somewhere warm. I think that's like the traditional thing of you know when people think about retirement. That was probably the most like, you know, the most standard answer. Kirk said, it's not a one and done moment in my life, in my mind at all. It's going to be more like a slow fade of reaching a point where I'm financially independent enough to make whatever choice I want about how I spend my time. And that's that's pretty much how I think about retirement. And I think the young people definitely probably think about it differently these days than their parents' generation did. I, I had a conversation with some friends about this a few weeks ago, and it was interesting to hear the answer. Some people want to retire like in their mid-50s or 60s and just completely cut it off. Other people are looking at it. This is kind of the way I view it, and I'm sure my, my views could change over time, but I think our lifespans are increasing, so I, I don't want to be bored for 30 years and not do anything. So I think it would be hard for me to just cut off and not do anything. But like you said, it's more about having the financial security to be able to do what you want and not work in a job that you don't like. I think that's that, that's more freeing than anything. So just having the freedom to to you know do the work you like and enjoy and, and not have it be something you're forced to do just to keep yourself afloat. And that's exactly what Garrett said. He, he wrote, retirement to me is just not having to work. Not necessarily that you won't work, but there's no necessity for it. So getting to the place where financially you can afford not to work, but choosing to do so anyway is, I think, probably the, the ideal scenario for most people, that they're working because they find purpose and meaning in what they're doing rather than just you know trying to put food on the table. Which I think is a great way to frame it, when you're trying, well, especially when financial service professionals are trying to get young people to save. The, the, the worst way to do it is to tell them you need to have X amount saved by 30, 40, 50, 60, then you can retire at age 65 and you'll have enough to do 4% and blah, blah. Like that's, that's, that doesn't work. It's more about showing them you know, you need to have freedom so you can work on your side hustle and you can do something else with your life and you don't have to do the nine to five cubicle job every day. So, so it's more about that's the way to get young people to save is to show them it's more about financial security and freedom than it is about moving to Florida when you're 65 or whatever. There was a, an article that from Bloomberg talking about the share of home sales to first time buyers. And this strikes me as like a really, really big deal. They wrote, first-time buyers rushed into the market last year, making 38% of all U.S. single-family home purchases, the biggest share since 2000. I don't know if this got enough attention. 
Well, it's funny because a few years ago, people were worried that millennials were never going to grow up and they were all going to never buy houses and they were just going to rent and never buy cars. And of course, as happens with everyone, as you get older, your responsibilities change and your view of the world changes. And of course, young people are going to buy houses eventually. I think it's just been pushed out because young people today go to school for longer than their parents did and they don't get married at such a young age. So they're not looking to buy a house at 19 or 20. It's probably more in their late 20s or early 30s, which is the way it worked for, for my wife and I. We didn't buy a house until until a little later. but So I think the idea that millennials were never going to buy a house was kind of laughable because it's just this happens to every generation. And so I think this is this is actually a good thing. And, and I think it's, it's actually getting probably harder for millennials to find housing in, in some ways because I think their tastes are much more refined than their parents' generation. So they don't want the starter home. They, they want it to be decked out because they've been watching HGTV and stuff. But I think, yeah, I think this is good news from an economic perspective. So there's another story sticking with housing. So many people are leaving the Bay Area that a U-Haul shortage is jacking up prices. And somebody tracked the costs of renting a U-Haul uh, from San Jose to six cities, uh, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Portland, Oregon, Nashville, and Atlanta. And in every model, the price of renting a truck outbound from San Jose was at least double the amount of renting the same vehicle in the opposite direction. <laughs> That's crazy. So there's like inflation even in U-Hauls in, on the West Coast. Yeah, I guess. I mean, at some point, it just the numbers that we're seeing and the anecdotes that we're hearing about from out of Silicon Valley are just like totally, totally insane. So there was one from Business Insider recently too that said the household income required to buy a typical home in San Francisco is now more than three hundred thousand dollars, and they say only twelve percent of households in the city could afford a median priced home. So it's just gotten so bizarrely expensive to live there. It's basically just. I think it's just going to be tech people and, and those tech millionaires who are going to be able to live there, which I think in some ways is going to be bad for them because they're living in some sort of this sort of bubble. And I think eventually it probably hasn't happened yet because technology has been so, I think, been so great, especially the last 10 years. We've gotten so many you know innovations that have helped. But I think eventually that makes them lose touch and it could could hurt their business models because they, they start to lose touch with like the common people who they're trying to serve <laughs> so that they're going to increasingly just try to solve problems for their rich friends in a lot of ways. Does that make sense? Uh, th- yeah. Uh, eh, maybe. So, okay, here's my, here's my, this is my Adam Sandler theory that I've, I've used before. But so Adam Sandler in his first few movies when he was young, I, I thought were some of my, you know, favorite comedy movies. And as he's gotten older, wait, and, Bill, Billy Madison or happy Gilmore, which one do I like better? It's yeah. like choosing my favorite child or something. I don't know. You can't, you can't put a, Put an answer on that one. I'm, uh, I'm happy Gilmore for yeah, me. Happy Gilmore. Yeah, you're right. Happy Gilmore. And, but but so I think it's like after a certain point, my Adam Sandler theory is after you become so wealthy and out of touch with like common everyday problems as he did, that it's hard to find things that are funny anymore because you're not dealing with the everyday pieces of life. So his movies have gotten worse over the years because of it but you know what's weird his movies in my opinion are unwatchable but they still do really really well like financially yeah they, do, they actually do really well with like younger kids i guess they they're the ones who like it now but movie kind of sewers like us is that yeah is that an original theory your adam sandler theory yes i wrote a post about this this i probably wrote this i don't know 2014 so i'll put it in the show notes and i even used some rotten tomato reviews for it so you have to see i actually got asked about this at a conference uh, once. very empirical yeah, right. Yeah. So that's that's my theory though. The further you get away from like the common person and and just you're you're out of touch, I feel like your 
your sense of problem solving or even comedy can kind of go away in, in a sense. It is sort of interesting that tech is such a deflationary force, but there's wild inflation in housing in, in the tech uh, community. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah, it's kind of crazy. So the other big thing this week was the Credit Suisse yearbook came out, which is one of the best pieces of free research that comes out each year. And as we do for our loyal listeners all the time, this is what, I don't know, 100 pages or so maybe. It's pretty long. So we go through this. We pulled some of our favorite graphs and charts and they've used this one before, but it is it is sort of crazy just to to sort of review this. They have a they have a chart that shows the relative size of the world stock markets at the end of 1899 uh, through the end of 2017. And the one in 1899, it shows all the different countries, and the U.S. made up 15% of a global market cap. The U.K. was actually the biggest at 25%. Germany and France were almost the same size as the U.S. And now you fast forward, you know, almost 120 years to to now, and the U.S. makes up over half of world market cap. A lot of these other ones are much smaller. It just looks like a different ballgame. It's crazy. How like how many people could have actually predicted that would have happened back then when the U.S. was basically an emerging market? Yeah, it is interesting. One of the charts that they had uh, alongside this that I've never seen before was the evolution of equity markets over time. So we've we've all seen the pie chart before, but this goes and it shows you like through time how big or small the percentages have gotten. And what's really what really really stands out is the Japanese bubble in the late '80s. Right, like exploded yeah. and then declined really quickly. The the other thing here to remember, I think, it's easy for us to look back now and and say, oh, of course, the U.S. has such a dynamic, diversified economy. Of course, they were going to be the winners and all this. But the winners write the history books. Like, isn't that the line they use? Where you, no one could have predicted this would happen. So, like, trying to extrapolate that now the U.S. is by far the biggest stock market of the world and, and assume that's going to continue from here. I think it's just is kind of foolish and to to avoid something like global diversification because the US was the winner over the last century doesn't necessarily mean it'll be over the next. I have a David Spade theory for this. Oh, okay. Matching Sandler with Spade. What do you so got? There's a No, I got nothing. <laughs> okay. Oh, I thought you really, really had one. All right. No, I really I really have nothing. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, another interesting one was long-run emerging and developed market returns. And I was surprised to to see that emerging markets underperformed quite significantly, one percent a year for the last hundred and twenty years. Now, it's a hundred twenty year chart, which is sort of ridiculous. But I guess one of the really interesting takeaways was they were pretty much neck and neck from nineteen hundred to nineteen forty five, and then in the aftermath of World War II, there was a huge divergence where emerging markets just absolutely got crushed. And I think one of the big reasons is because a lot of the public markets went to zero. Yeah, they just they just went basically went out of business. Yeah, you can see it was it was right. You can see that where World War Two was in that chart where it just drops off of a cliff. And on, and since then, it looks like the emerging markets have actually closed the gap in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would say that if you if you started from from 1950 to today, I bet you emerging markets crush. Yeah, they had a great chart of like that, that too. That one that one five year period throws everything off. Right. Yeah, which is something, and I think it's another reason to think why. Markets are a lot safer these days than they were because we're not going through a war every five years. Famous last, famous last words. Yeah, I know. Yeah, a war is going to start tomorrow. But but they had a cool chart in here that showed the the performance of different countries um, and the world during the different wars. And so they showed World War One, and then they showed the Great Depression and World War Two, and all these different things, which is kind of interesting. The one that stuck out to me was 
all every stock market around the world in World War One got crushed, except for Japan was up like sixty six percent during World War One, which I just kind of a uh, interesting factoid I never knew. Now what from yeah from nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen the U S lost eighteen percent on a real basis, but nineteen fifteen was the best year ever for the Dow. Stocks were up eighty six percent that year, so that's pretty nuts. That even despite an eighty six percent gain in one of those four year periods, that stocks still got hammered. How did Vanguard Value Fund during that time? Don't even ask. Okay. Another thing that stands out is on the bottom on the bottom part of this chart. There's a column. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a row, not a column. Longest runs of cumulative negative real returns, and f- France, Germany, and Japan have all experienced 50 plus years of negative real returns. So when people say stocks for the long run, I think that's something that you and I, you know pretty much ascribed to, but there's no guarantees. There no. is risk involved. I mean, 50 years is an entire life of investing, and that's just the reality of it. Nothing is promised. There's, there's no, Nobody can tell you that you're going to be compensated for the risks that you take. Which is one of the reasons you don't want something of a home country bias. You want to be diversified because you don't want to be stuck in that one country that sees horrible real returns over a long period of time, over a number of decades. That's the whole point. You diversify in the first place, so you don't have to live through one of these. Because hopefully, you're not. They're all, not all going to happen at the same time. If, if if it did happen, you know, in a few instances. But then they show the world, and from 1910 to 1931, the world had negative real returns, which was a 22-year period. What do you you know like tough? That's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that's the risk part of the the equation. So you you also you also picked out a good one that showed the. The average asset allocation of ultra high net worth individuals, which is kind of interesting, and it kind of shows financial assets makes up a smaller piece than you'd think. So it's only about a quarter of it, and that's stocks, bonds, cash, and stuff. So it's all real estate makes up another big piece, and then personal businesses makes up another big piece. They all make but about twenty five percent. The twenty four percent of real estate that's excluding homes. So that's like real estate investments. Right. Primary and second homes is sixteen percent. But yeah, I thought uh, maybe the thing that didn't surprise me is personal business is twenty three percent. That yeah, that seems. I think people, if you've ever read the Millionaire Next Door book, you know that a lot of the the people who fall into that category own their own business. And we have seen in in our own business where a lot of people come to us and they're trying to diversify away from that because their whole life savings has been has been you know built up in a, in their own business and they want to diversify away from it or cash out in some way. It is kind of interesting. So let's move on to some of the some of the articles that we saw this week. I saw this in Mashable, and it just made me think that the Fed is way behind the curve. (laughs) Coffee addicts, this phone will change your life. There's a phone case that makes a shot of espresso. I don't... Is that like Ponzi coin? Is it just... Is it just a joke? How does that somebody work? Somebody actually... Somebody actually thought this was a good idea. Did you see this video? No, I didn't look at the video. I just saw the, the headline. You could pour coffee from your phone case. I wouldn't trust myself because how do you get it in there in the first place? Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. See, this Nonsense. is why this is why I don't drink coffee because I don't want to mess up my phone. Smart. Okay, uh, an, an article from the Wall Street Journal. This was this, there was a lot in here. The title was "Investors' Zeal to Buy Stocks with Debt Leaves Markets Vulnerable." So one of the things, and there there was a lot going on in here. One of the things that they spoke about was margin debt, which is a often a topic of conversation. So they say that. The growing loan balances have caught the attention of Wall Street's watchdog. FINRA in January published an investor alert after the total value of margin loans broke $600 billion for the first time. So I don't know who they were alerting, but also in the article, it <laughs> yeah, says I that- I never got the alert on my phone for that one. Yeah, 
I didn't get it. Net margin debt was 1.3% of total value of the New York Stock Exchange last year, eclipsing the previous peak of 1.27% in the tech bubble of 2000. So $600 billion is a huge number, but we talk about this a lot, denominator blindness. It's 1.3%. So I understand that it's it's an all-time high, but I think context is really important here. Yeah. Well, I've looked at this before too. Margin debt at all-time highs means the market's probably at all-time highs because it typically tracks the market. So it's not a leading indicator. It's kind of a coincident indicator that just follows along with the market. So if the market's at all-time highs, there's a good chance margin debt will be too. And then I, the thing that always gets me about articles like this is I understand where, where, you know, where they find retail people to comment on, some, on being blown up. Like this one guy says, I was so bullish that I went all in. Then when the market recovered, he had to deposit $2,500 into his account to satisfy a margin call. The next day, the market ripped higher and I breathed a sigh of relief. Okay, I get it. That's a, that's a nice anecdote. However, how do they find people like this that will go on the record to talk to the Wall Street Journal? Harvey Hajian, a 35-year-old financial advisor from Toronto, has been investing for more than a decade, assumed stocks would, go, would continue to grind higher this year. Da, 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 da. Um, okay, quote, all of the strategists agreed the market would go up, said Mr. Hajian. I was in denial, he said, after he realized he lost about 600000 Canadian dollars, and he was doing this investing in SVXY. Why would you say that to a reporter? <laughs> the, the way that I look at this, I think people just love having publicity. Like, you remember, you remember the show Cops? I think it might still be on. Like, all the That's people... the greatest, greatest reality show of all time. So all the people that they arrest have to sign a waiver showing their face. Otherwise, they have to blur <laughs> it out. But they all show their face. Like, why would you do that? That's like the same thing. Like, I think people just... Whatever it is, they want their 15 minutes and they want... So I, I'm sure if anyone from the Wall Street Journal calls them up, they're happy to talk. But it, it, makes no, it makes no sense why you would out yourself as a financial advisor for making irrational decisions on behalf of your own account or your clients. Like, there's, there's no upside there. The quote, all of the strategists agreed the market would go up. Like... Oh my God, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I know. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Another one, TD Ameritrade to allow trading via Twitter. Good idea, bad idea, or best idea ever? How exactly is that going to work? I, I don't know. They said, we have to go where our customers are. A lot of people consume their news on Twitter, and the new offering is about making trading more accessible and easier. So I don't know exactly how the mechanics of this work. I think like maybe you DM a a TD bot or something? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they must be trying to keep up with places like Robinhood that are making it easy to, to do it on your phone. Uh, yeah, I don't see why you need to make it that easy to, to trade. But if someone's asking for it, I guess they someone will always do it. But I don't see the need. I think <laughs> emotions are running high enough on social media as it is that putting trading into that mix is probably not a great idea. Wait, I don't understand what happened. I tweeted the order in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, that that was a subtweet. Actually, I didn't really mean to buy Apple. I was being facetious. If you, if if there should be a hedge fund that shorts all the orders that go in through Twitter. Yeah, seriously, I uh, that's that, that would be interesting. So you could track it a little bit. I'm sure that there's ways that they they do that, but uh, that's not a good idea. Did you see this uh, thread from David Peril on career advice? Yeah, he's he's a pretty good follow on Twitter. This was interesting. So a lot of good stuff in here. The favorite thing that I got from it was from Seth Godin, who said, you don't get paid what you deserve. You get paid what other people think you're worth. I've always liked, I, I've always liked the one that is like, don't necessarily follow your passion. Figure out something you're good at and it'll turn into your passion. Yeah, I never really got good career advice. I never really asked for career advice. My, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people just figure out like trial by fire and, and just go through and there's nothing that really changed their life. But 
Yeah, he's. I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the whole the whole uh, like life advice industry. I think a lot of the stuff you just have to figure out on your own. You mean two quotes in one book isn't going to change your life? <laughs> yeah, okay. Any uh, good recommendations this week? Uh, one more thing, actually. Somebody emailed me asking like why Schwab charges so much for Vanguard funds and what they should do about it. And I actually came across this myself because now that rates have started to, to go up, I put a lot of the cash that I had into New York municipal bond funds, which are yielding like on a tax equivalent yield almost 5%, which is pretty darn good. And I wanted to buy Vanguard's New York municipal bond fund on Schwab. And I saw the commission was $79. And I could not believe it. So I called Schwab and they said, yeah, that's like what it is. So I was going to start a Vanguard, open a Vanguard account, but that was sort of like a hassle, not the easiest thing to do. So I just bought NYF. So basically, it's just competition and they don't want another fund provider on their platform. Yeah. I mean, Schwab has a lot of index funds that are basically like free. I think they're like, they might even be less than Vanguard. I think they're four basis points. They didn't have a New York municipal bond fund. I'm sorry to buy the iShares ETF, but that's crazy. $79. It's 2018. Yeah, so Schwab has already built a wall. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah. That, that, that seems insane to pay that much for anything for trading. Yeah. So my favorite podcast this week was the Warby Parker founders were on How I Built This. Did you ah, listen to that? Yes, this was on my list as well. Sorry. That was good. It was you, good. You totally stole my thunder. Yeah, it was really good. I thought the coolest thing was that they did this while they were in business school and they came in, they lost in the semifinals of like the business competition. Like they put this out as a business plan and they lost, which reminded me of like supposedly the FedEx guy when he was getting his MBA, the guy who started FedEx, Fred Smith, is that his name? I, I'm not sure if I got that right, but he got a C plus when he out, when he laid out the FedEx business plan in like the seventies for, so I thought that was kind of interesting anyway. So I've seen these books in Barnes and Noble a million times and I never thought to get them because it's just a Herculean effort, but I was in a used bookstore in Prospect Heights and these books were $9 each. So I I took the leap. Edmund Morris wrote a three-part biography on Theodore Roosevelt and it is so rich in detail, like every day of his life practically is in there. And it got me thinking about biographies. So I, I really love biographies and sometimes a lot of people have the opinion that like biographies should be 300 or 400 pages shorter. Like all the turnout biographies are like seven to a thousand pages. Yes. I'm of the opinion of that they should be shorter. Okay. However, once you're done reading a biography that's 800 pages, you have such a intimate understanding of who the person was. And I suppose that's just personal preference. Like maybe you don't need to understand every single aspect of the person's life. But like the most recent biography that I read was... Ulysses S. Grant, the turnout one. And I don't think that you could have accomplished the same thing in 300 pages. Here's another example. I loved Roger Lowenstein's book on Buffett, Making a Capitalist. But I thought Snowball, which was double the length and didn't need to be, was far superior. Okay. See that, you, that's you, where we differ. The other side. Yeah. Yes, that's where we differ. I, I like the other one better. I, I think it's too... I don't need to know like what that his great aunt did in the 1900s, like what her job was or something. I always skip over like the first two chapters because it's all just stuff in their family that I don't care about, but maybe that's just me. Okay. Any other ones? Uh, nope. That's all I got. Okay. So how many presidents have you worked through at this point for biographies? Probably a dozen. Yeah. That's not bad. Okay. So my... Let's see. I got a few different recommendations this week. My first recommendation is to watch the first season of Atlanta on FX. That was probably my favorite show last year favorite new show and that one comes out the new show starts this week the new is season, it on season two 
I'm not sure. It's, well, if it's on FX, so I'm not sure what streaming services it's on. And so maybe it's on Hulu. I'm not sure, but the first season was great. I one of my favorite new shows. It's just very unique. And let's see the other one. I got a couple partial recommendations because I'm not all the way through them yet. So I started reading Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Have you oh, read I love this? that book. Okay, so good. Kind of like Sapiens, but I'm I'm a little yeah. bit away through it. I, I can't blow through these 700 pages like you can. And the other one I started was called Behave by Robert Supolsky. And this was actually a recommendation by Michael Mobison on a podcast recently. It's like a 700-page book, and it has like every single behavioral study you've ever thought about. But it tr- tries to look at what happens to the brain and the body before we make a decision. And so what is going on in the different regions of your brain that causes they may cause you to make a decision depending on your emotional state. So I'm, I'm just about a quarter of the way through it, but it's really, really interesting and I think the the brain is just it's fascinating to no end. Uh, the other one I'm reading, The Wanted by Elvis Cole, uh, or sorry, what's Elvis, that? El, Elvis Cole is the is the character. Um, so Robert Kreis. It's a detective series, one of the better detective series I've read. It started in the '90s, and I'm probably on my twenty plus something book of it. It's a great uh, great detective. How, one of like a private on. equity you've in read, LA. You've read twenty plus of these books, and I've never heard you talk about that. No, I, so I've got a few of detective ones that I've I've read since they they probably go back to the nineties or eighties. In some cases, they they put out a new one every year, and yeah, it's, it's so. If you wanted to start at the beginning of this Elvis Cole series, it's really really good. It's him, and it's I mean, it's your stereotypical private eye who's a tough guy, but he knows how to cook, and he's good with the ladies, and he has a he has a <laughs> and he has a partner who's kind of shy and quiet but beats up people and it's uh yeah it's really good so i i've been reading the new one of that and the other one i liked the a16z podcast this week where they talked to ted sarandos who's the chief content officer at netflix that was uh that was a worthwhile listen agreed that's all i got yeah that was a good one i, I love especially how they said that ne- they netflix gets like seven to ten pitches a day from people but i, I was looking this weekend and they must have had 30 or 40 new titles and in, in shows and it's just amazing how it's, much it's get, yeah it's there getting is. very overwhelming it is i don't know what to do i need a two times speed for my tv viewing <laughs> all right thank you for listening we appreciate all the emails and feedback that we've been getting you can reach us at animal at gmail.com we will see you next week